Hi, I'm Mark Brody, co-host of the show, one of KJZZ's original productions. It's a program with news and features from across Phoenix and the state. You can find much more at theshow.kjzz.org. Here's today's episode. Good morning and welcome to the show here on KJZZ 91.5 in Phoenix. I'm Lauren Gilger. And I'm Mark Brody. Coming up, there's a new twist in the ongoing financial crisis at the University of Arizona. And climbing Everest while blind, we meet the groundbreaking mountaineer who uses echolocation to summit the world's highest peaks. But first, when Governor Katie Hobbs outlined her priorities for the 2024 legislative session, she got lots of applause and standing ovations from fellow Democrats in the House chamber. The governor and Democratic lawmakers seem to be on the same page on issues like education and abortion rights. But are there other issues on which they may have disagreements? Cameron Sanchez from KJZZ's Politics Desk is here now to talk about that. Good morning, Cameron. Good morning. So do the governor and legislative Democrats seem to be on the same policy page here? Well, they definitely have a lot of the same ideas of, like, we want to support education. We want to have good housing and water. Very general things that I think most people would agree with. But then when it gets into the detail of that, there are some areas where they're not matching up. Um, and you saw that in the governor's state of the state speech as compared to the Democrats' legislative priorities, which also came out on the same day. Um, issues like housing, for example, uh, it seems like their plans haven't been coordinated together. Well, how like how far apart do they seem to be on an issue like housing? Well, housing was one that stood out to me because there are some things where they're definitely on the same page, like with uh, Hobbes's ESA uh, restrictions, ideas. I the school Democrats, voucher program, yeah. Yes, I believe the Democrats are going to be the ones, you know, putting those up as bills because that's how it gets through the process. But then with housing, um, the governor mentioned she wants to put, I believe, $10 million or so into certain projects, including, I think, mortgage assistance. The Democrats had a whole press conference, House and the Senate Democrats. Um, they had been working together throughout the interim between the legislative sessions. They've been doing a stakeholder process and they have... Um, an idea about which bills they're going to sponsor and who's going to sponsor them and what they're going to do. And none of them seemed to be the same as what Hobbes was suggesting. Hmm. And that same week, the governor said that she hadn't seen the plans, but she hoped she could get behind them. Well, so how much of this do you think or do folks think comes down to communication versus actual policy differences? A lot of it does. And I think every governor is different with how they communicate with the legislature. Uh, of course, the Arizona legislature is controlled by Republicans. So mainly Hobbes does have to deal with Republicans and not Democrats. But since they're of the same party, it also makes sense that they would coordinate. And that was an issue last session. How about items that might come up in the budget? Of course, you know, the state is dealing with having to close a 400 some odd million dollar mm -hmm. shortfall for the rest of this fiscal year, roughly the same for next year. Does it seem as though the governor and legislative Democrats might be in agreement on how to do that? I think the budget is the biggest indication of how the communication lines are, because last year, the Republicans met with Hobbs frequently, the Republican leaders, and they negotiated a budget, a bipartisan budget. And I think the Democrats were expecting Hobbs to reach out to them more and to give them a seat at the table when in reality um, they were presented with a plan that she had worked out with Republicans. And they were not pleased with that because they hadn't had all of their input you know, <laughs> included there, yeah. even though there were some Democratic wins in the budget and they ultimately did support it. There was definitely some some frustration there. Was there communication after that between Democratic leadership in the legislature and the governor's office or the governor herself about, hey, look, 
yes, we supported this budget. We're okay with some of the stuff that was in it, but we would have loved to have been part of the process, be brought in a little bit earlier. They definitely said that. So it remains to be seen how this year's budget goes. Uh, I believe, you know, it's fair to mention that last year Hobbs was just getting started as governor. She had never tried doing a budget before, obviously. And this year, you know, her staff hasn't had as much turnover as last time, which was a point of much turmoil. And of course, you know, she's already gotten one bipartisan budget through. So it could be that things go more smoothly now. Do lawmakers, Democratic lawmakers, seem optimistic about that? I mean, it seems like they were a little bit peeved about some of the the way that some things went last year. Are they more hopeful about this year? As far as I'm aware, you know, I reached out to a few of the Democratic lawmakers, including the two leaders in the House and Senate before this, and they didn't respond when I asked them about their relationship with the governor. Hmm. So it could be that they're talking or it could be that everyone's waiting to see what she does. And you mentioned that the governor negotiated in large part the budget last year with the House Speaker and Senate president. I would imagine to some extent that makes a lot of sense, right? Because Republicans still control the legislature. Like if something's going to get done, the governor and the Republican leadership have to make that happen. It does. But of course, before Hobbs, we had Ducey for a very long time. And so it's been a Republican-controlled legislature with a Republican governor. And that was the system for years. And Democrats couldn't get, you know, the time of day. So when they finally got a Democrat in the governor's office, I think they were expecting that they would be included in much more of the discussions rather than it being the Republican Party, the Hobbs Party, and the legislative Democratic Party in the dust. Interesting. And it's probably worth noting that both the governor and her chief of staff, Chad Campbell, are former minority leaders in the legislature. Yes. So what are folks saying about how they expect this year's process to go in terms of maybe better communication or, you know, sort of more alignment on priorities or what might happen on on areas like housing, as you outlined, where, you know, the priorities seem to maybe be a little bit different? I think on areas where the priorities are different, we're not going to see much change. Uh, And by that, I mean, with these housing bills, I don't know that they're going to move, especially because they're having Democratic sponsors. And when there's a Democratic sponsor of a bill in a Republican-controlled legislature, as you can imagine, you know, it has less of a chance of survival. I know that Hobbs, in her State of the State speech, was taking a very bipartisan approach. She mentioned topics. She went very heavily into the border, for example, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, where she has frustration with the federal government, just like the Republicans do. And um, whereas the Democratic priorities were a little more far left because they can be. And they mentioned things like expanding LGBTQ rights, which Hobbs didn't get into. Right. Interesting. Lots to uh, keep our eyes on. Yes. Lots of, as you say, three parties maybe at the the state legislature Mm -hmm. in 2024. That is Cameron Sanchez from KJZZ's Politics Desk. Thanks, Cameron. Thank you. It wasn't too long ago that the University of Arizona found itself in a tough spot. President Robert Robbins announced to the Board of Regents and the public late last year that the school was facing an unprecedented $240 million budget shortfall that he attributed to financial miscalculation. Then, six weeks later, Robbins announced a plan to address the crisis, including the resignation of the school's chief financial officer, Lisa Rolney. It was a nod to accountability at the highest levels of the school's administration. But it turns out her resignation didn't mean she was out of a job. In fact, our next guest found she's still on staff at the University of Arizona, just in a new role, making the same salary. Caitlin Schmidt broke the story yesterday in the Tucson Agenda, and she's on the line now to tell us more. Good morning, Caitlin. 
Hi there. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. So I want to begin with what you found here about the university's chief financial officer. Where has she been reassigned? Um, She is working right now as the senior advisor for business operations. Um, The tip that we received about her employment suggested that that was a newly created position, but the university did not respond to our question about that. Hmm. So when this announcement about her resignation was made alongside many other changes that the university suggested in terms of addressing this financial crisis, was there any nuance in it? Was it pretty clear, it seemed to everyone, that she was leaving? Uh, Yeah, it really did sound like that to us, to our colleagues in local media, um, presumably to the regents. Um, President Robbins wished her well, um, which isn't usually something you say to someone that's sticking around on campus. Hmm. So let's back up for just a moment and have you kind of remind us how the university got here, how this financial miscalculation to the tune of $240 million happened. Um, yes, so they said that it was a it was a failure by the prediction model in the software that they were using. Um, didn't didn't offer much more explanation than that. Said that there had been some overspending by departments. Um, talked about loaning a lot of money to the athletics department, but they really chalked it up to that prediction model failing. Hmm. So what have they said they're doing about it? Give us some details about that plan that they released not long ago. Um, They started with compensation freezes and hiring freezes. So a lot of employees on campus were set to receive raises um, that they had been long overdue for. Those are now on hold. Um, There have been layoffs, we were told, by the United Campus Workers of Arizona, um, although those have been quiet. But I have been told um, by people that cover athletics that there have not been any layoffs in athletics, which we were told in December would be coming. Hmm. So you also spoke with many University of Arizona staffers yesterday after this story came out about the news. What did they have to say? Like, what's the feeling on campus about about this this new kind of revelation? Not good. Um, No one is feeling really happy about how this went down. Um, The chair of the faculty senate I spoke to, um, Layla Hudson, said that it was uh, collective outrage from the people that she had spoken to. Um, She used the phrase a kick in the teeth a few times. Mm. Um, She said that they had been working really hard actually since last May um, when they issued a vote of no confidence in President Robbins to rebuild trust, to show that they were willing to do their part to make this a relationship that works. And they really feel as if that trust has been broken um, in light of this recent incident. Let's talk about that vote of no confidence and what happened then. There were some parallels made, it sounds like, to how the university dealt with another major scandal when hydrology professor Thomas Meichner was shot and killed on campus. And there was a lot of outrage about that, especially among faculty, I know. What, what did they have to say about that, the, the comparison there, the trust that they were trying to rebuild? So um, after, after all of that happened, the university... Um, took the steps of uh, removing or having their uh, senior vice president and provost, Liesl Folks, step down. Um, They also uh, changed the police chief, but we have since learned that Liesl Folks does still work on campus. Um, Faculty Senate was aware of this. She was moved to another vice president position, uh, vice president for semiconductor strategy, and never really resigned as uh, folks thought that she did. So the parallels here are pretty strong. Layla Hudson told me that this appears to be a pattern. She she mentioned some other employees that this had happened with, although said that personnel records really made it hard to get details on these kinds of things. Do we know what the Faculty Senate may do next in this case? Are there, are there calls for President Robert Roberts to sort of answer for this? 
Absolutely. Um, they had already requested an outside audit of the university finances. Um, when I when I spoke to Layla yesterday, they had been back on campus for like 24 hours after break, so hadn't had a chance to make other plans. But she said there will be conversations about this with administration. Heidi, any other response from the university, from the president about your story yesterday and about some of this, you know, ongoing, you know, it sounds like unrest among the faculty and staff? Yeah, we didn't hear back from the university again yesterday. I also reached out to um, the executive director of the Arizona Board of Regents, Mm -hmm. John Arnold, who is serving as the interim CFO at the U of A to see if the regents were aware that um, Ms. Rolney was staying on or if at the very least he had been consulted about this in his position as CFO. And I didn't hear back from him. Um, I, I expect that administration will be getting some pressure from the other campus groups. Um, the graduate, the president of the Graduate and Professional Student Council I spoke to yesterday was also very unhappy. Um, they will be requesting an external audit. And the United Campus Workers um, have been very vocal since the start of this about how the line level workers are really the ones being impacted by this. They're the ones that are losing their jobs and not the people that are making six figures. So mm-hmm. they've already started a new social media campaign on Instagram. Um, putting pressure on the president. And I expect that we'll see more of that in coming weeks. Right. Sort of comparing what one of their workers might make to what some of these top level administrators make. Yes, um, that that one was running over winter break and it was quite staggering. Um, The one that really stood out to me was that the annual salary for a food service cook is twenty one thousand eight hundred and forty dollars versus President Robbins nine hundred and forty five thousand dollars salary. So uh, there's, you know, there's some big discrepancies there. Um, but today their campaign uh, featured zero days since last press embarrassment. Um, so they've taken a different approach this time. Mm. All right. We'll leave it there for now. Lots to watch for. It sounds like that is Caitlin Schmidt with the Tucson Agenda joining us to talk more about this story. Caitlin, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. And I'm Lauren Gilger. Coming up, why a famous mountaineer decided to summit the highest peaks on Earth after losing his sight. You know, not being able to see beautiful pictures and scenery is is one thing, but not being able to live fully is like the most terrifying thing in the world. And so for me, it was about living. We'll hear about one of his latest feats climbing a massive rock face in the Sierra Nevadas. But first, the Phoenix Union High School District decided late last year to pilot a new kind of security measure at a couple of its schools, weapons detectors. That follows the decision by Mesa Public Schools to incorporate them as well as vape sensors in bathrooms. Many schools already have metal detectors through which students have to pass before going inside. And our next guest says they become such a big part of life, walking through them at the airport, at concerts and lots of other places. But she says it's a very different thing at schools. Elizabeth Anthony is an associate professor in the School of Social Work at ASU, where she studies resilience among young people exposed to adversity. She joins me. And Elizabeth, first off, I'm curious what you make of these weapons detectors as opposed to metal detectors, which can be set off by you know, things like car keys or a phone or something like that. Well, that's certainly an improvement um, because it's getting more efficient. So hopefully it can do its job more quickly. So one of the things we want to think about with metal detectors in schools is does it slow the process of young people trying to get into the school and learning environment? And so absolutely, I think the more efficient metal detectors make great sense. 
What do the data say about how effective metal detectors are in terms of keeping weapons and other contraband out of schools and and to some extent making those schools safer? So unfortunately, the data is um, very limited in terms of demonstrating effectiveness of metal detectors. So even in the cases where it may limit the number of contraband coming onto campus, we've had examples where a shooter shoots out the person who is manning the metal detector and goes ahead on campus. So if someone wants to get on campus to conduct violence, a metal detector is not going to stop them. Is the metal detector maybe more effective for the, I guess for lack of a better word, the impulsive acts, somebody who isn't necessarily planning on doing something but decides sort of in the moment to do it to maybe stop that sort of thing from happening? Yes, and that's a great suggestion. Um, Unfortunately, the data suggests still that a basic search is just as effective as a metal detector. So then here we're talking about cost. Right. And these metal detectors are not inexpensive, right, to either buy them or to rent them. So, like, how does the cost-benefit analysis sort of play out in terms of having the technology versus having people doing that kind of job? It's very much the same in some ways as the other school hardening techniques. So, for example, um, school resource officers. So they are really, um, the data really suggest that um, personalized approaches are just as effective. Um, And so using personnel that already work in a school, for example, may be just as effective and more relational approaches are good for kids. So in other words, a student who maybe is questioned or searched by somebody that they know in from school, like an an adult that they know and trust, is better maybe than either somebody that they don't know or even a, a piece of machinery? Yes. So if we go back to the idea of our schools becoming more like prisons or more like learning institutions, it reinforces the idea which we're trying to reinforce with students. This is a place you want to be. This is a place you're welcome. This is a place where we conduct learning. How easy or difficult is it to find somebody to do that job, especially somebody that students will will know and trust, given all of the controversy we've seen and heard about school resource officers and other law enforcement folks in schools? And, you know, sometimes administrators, for example, aren't always the most beloved people on campus either. That's a great point. And it's hard to say who would be most um, willing to, to conduct that job. But I think the common piece of information to take from that is if it's individuals the young people know on a daily basis, it's more likely to reinforce their trust in the school system. Are there other things that are maybe, if not equally effective, but also effective to some extent to try to keep schools safe and to try to keep weapons and other things that shouldn't be in schools out of them? Well, we think about sort of a multi-pronged approach where we're addressing mental health issues. We're identifying young people with um, violent tendencies early. We're providing support um, in multiple places. We're teaching young people how to communicate with each other, um, how to handle conflict. And then we're also training teachers on crisis response. How do you think that this school district should ultimately evaluate whether or not the the test period is successful? And I ask because, like, if the detectors find some number of weapons, 
and they're kept out of school, clearly, you know, it seems like they would work. However, if they don't find something, that could mean that students didn't bring anything or try to bring anything. It also could mean that the machines themselves didn't do their jobs. So, like, I wonder, like, what metrics you would be using or advising the districts to use to try to determine if, if these worked and if the district should be investing in them further. So they could do sort of a pre-post um, approach where they look at how many, uh, well, in this case, both um, knives and guns on campus have come before the metal detectors and how many after. Um, but again, one of the things that is concerning about this approach is that it the cost for school systems in general. Is your concern that money will go toward these kinds of things as opposed to books or technology or teachers or, or things like that? Absolutely. So in the past, um, we have seen money diverted from counselors, for for example, for police officers in schools. And so currently, I believe they're funding both. So if we have unlimited funds, I have kids who go to public school and I don't mind them having to go through a metal detector to get into class, but I wouldn't want it to be in place of some other type of learning opportunity for them, given the mixed evidence. Well, so what's the balance then? Because as you say, you know, there are a lot of needs in schools and, you know, there's a lot of data that suggests that if students don't feel safe in, in school, then they're not going to learn well. So, like, what's the right balance of allocating money to sort of learning and teaching versus safety and security? Yes, I think we definitely can do what we can to make schools safe. And I think schools are doing that. So since COVID, we've seen locked facilities. Uh, people are not wandering randomly on campus. There's certainly a, a sense of things being a lot tighter. So I think schools should get credit for already doing what they can to keep their campuses safe. But I think we want to make these decisions not out of fear, but out of evidence and for an evidence-informed approach. And so I would say when we look at the evidence and when we look at our current funding situation, we should be really asking important questions about whether it's worth it to spend this kind of money on something that hasn't proven to be effective in keeping schools safe. Um, the other thing I want to point out is if we are considering metal detectors here in Arizona, I think the most um, appropriate way to do that would be to put them in all schools. So don't just choose certain schools based on whether um, they're considered to be more high risk for having uh, weapons on campus, but to do it equally across the system. All right. That is Elizabeth Anthony, an associate professor in the School of Social Work at ASU. Elizabeth, thanks for the conversation. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Dams were first built along many major rivers in the country to control the flow of water, to create reservoirs or generate electricity. But now, as the environmental and cultural impacts of many of those dams are coming to the fore, they are starting to come down. That's the story that's playing out on one river in northern California called the Klamath. And our next guest spent a long time reporting there, from the tribal concerns about the four dams along the river to how taking them down will bring salmon back to its shores. Deborah Utasia Kroll is Indigenous Affairs Reporter for the Arizona Republic, and I spoke with her more about it all, beginning with more about the Klamath. 
the Klamath River, it, its official length is 263 miles from Upper Klamath Lake in the town eponymously named Klamath Falls. Uh, down through Northern California, the mouth of the river is at Requa or Rekhoi, mm-hmm. which literally means mouth of the creek in the Karuk language. Mm-hmm. So it's been dammed up for a long time, but those dams have come down. Tell us about why and sort of what led to this conversation. Well, the dams were originally constructed in the early 20th century as hydroelectric generators. That was the first time that Northern California, far Northern California, had actually had electric service. There are actually six dams on the Klamath, and and the big project right now is to take the four worst offenders down. Mm. As the years went by, it became apparent that these dams were preventing salmon and steelhead runs which had economic, cultural, religious, and social implications all up and down the river because the the tribes have always depended upon salmon mm-hmm. um, for their livelihood, for their ceremonies, for their subsistence. Most of that region is extremely remote, and subsistence is a big part of the river, both for the Native peoples who have lived there for thousands of years and the non-Native people who've moved in. Fish are a big part of people's diets, and they're part of their culture. You know, there's part of the cultural transmission between parents and kids and grandparents and grandkids. Yeah. And when you can't get out there and go fish, and you can't get into the river because the toxins generated from the algae buildup at those four dams mm. comes coursing down the river, it's too, it's too toxic for people to go in. It's too toxic for Dogs go in, and it's certainly too toxic for fish. So something had to be done. So the fish were dying, essentially? In 2002, there was a giant fish kill related to the Bureau of Reclamation cutting off river flows from those dams down. Hmm. And they estimate anywhere between thirty to 70,000 fish died. Wow. And it was an ecological disaster. And so the tribes, the, the Yurok, the Hoopa, the Karuk, the Shastas, and farther up, they were the main drivers between bringing those dams down. How long has this been going on? Like, this is a long-term effort. That was 2002 you're yeah. talking about. When did they finally come down? The first dam came down this summer. Wow. So <laughs> decades. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. mean, how, tell us about the people behind that effort and, and how they made this happen. It was a coalition led by tribes and their allies, you know, environmentalists, people who lived along the river whose livelihoods as fishing guides were dying, commercial salmon fishers on the Pacific Ocean because the the, the estimated salmon run of 500,000 had dwindled down to 40,000, mm-hmm. which meant that nobody was catching fish, nobody was making money, you know, mortgages went unpaid, homes were getting repossessed, you know, families were disintegrating because they weren't able to make a living off what the river provided. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about what it's meant to them to be successful in this, to watch those dams come down. And, and have we seen any changes yet? I mean, it hasn't been long since the first one came down, as you said. The the tribes are very, very, very thankful. They're grateful. They're they're stoked to see the dams coming down. The first dam that, that came down, you can already see the, the channel reestablishing itself, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and the tribes know that this is only the start. 
you know, they've also been rehabilitating salmon spawning areas and side creeks up and down um, from where the dams are coming down, Mm -hmm. down to the mouth. They think it might be decades. However, on the other hand, we've seen with the Elwa River dam situation in Washington, it was about 10 years before they started seeing salmon spawning and, and having enough to actually fish out of the river again. So it might not be might not be decades. It might be a decade. A decade. But a, a long time yeah. regardless, yeah, to rehabilitate these areas. So this is not the only place in the country where these kinds of conversations are happening, right? Like where there's talk of removing dams that have been there a really long time in many cases and that were sort of put there in theory to conserve water, to help the situation on these rivers, right, to to make sure that it was evenly spread out, all these things. There's hydropower involved. There's business and economics involved here. Tell us about the broader conversation about why people are thinking about taking dams down now. They're starting to see that dams are not the solution that everybody thought that they were, that they're actually a net negative on the larger environmental situations. Hmm. Like those dams, the four major dams on the Klamath, have literally affected the entire basin, which, by the way, is around the size of West Virginia. (laughs) Huge area, Yeah. yeah. So right now they're talking about removing dams on the Snake River, for a lot of the same reasons, to restore not just the salmon runs, but restore the entire ecology. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we down here have heard rumblings about, you know, maybe removing Glen Canyon Dam. You know, we don't know if that's ever going to happen, but there's certainly people starting to think about maybe that one should come down. Mm-hmm. Maybe Boulder Dam should come down. I'm not sure that the likelihood of either of those happening anytime soon, mm-hmm. but there's more of a realization that. What happens at one one part of the river affects all the parts of the river. And I think it's a a growing realization of how the environment and the lands and the waters are all connected to each other. And I think it's also a reflection that people are starting to listen to us indigenous peoples. Right. Like these are tribal-led efforts, tribal-led conversations. And and these are things that people in tribes have been saying for a long time, it sounds like. Yeah. Why, what do you think is shifting now so that their voices are being heard? I think that it's not only environmentalists starting to realize this. Last week I was at the Colorado River Water Users Association Conference known as CRUA, which is the big gathering of all the water buffaloes, as mm-hmm. they call themselves, the big water managers of the basin. Now, I can't speak for all 1,700 people there because I didn't hear them all. I didn't hear anyone talking about climate denial they're all talking about climate change. They're all talking about the water is available, water is shrinking. What are we going to do? And the tribes are saying, well, let us in because we have solutions mm-hmm. and we can work together. And I think there's a growing realization that there are, are people who've been around for a long time who understand how things fit together. It's, it's the holistic qualitative way of doing science as opposed to the Western models, which mm-hmm. is quantitative, you know, things are listed and things are put in little rows. But when you put the two together, they're starting to see that that when you merge the quantitative and the qualitative, that you're getting a lot better picture of how the earth works Mm -hmm. and how best to sustain it. Because after all, if we sustain the earth, we sustain ourselves too. Yeah. All right. We'll leave it there. 
Deborah Utasia Kroll, Indigenous Affairs reporter for the Arizona Republic, joining us. Deb, thanks so much for coming in. As always, I appreciate it very much. Oh, thank you for having me. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. And I'm Mark Brody. Arizona voters decided to legalize recreational marijuana in 2020. Last year, Ohio voters made that state the 24th in the country to allow recreational cannabis. Meanwhile, the Biden administration is now recommending the federal government reclassify cannabis from a Schedule One to a Schedule Three drug. That's a less restrictive level. With me to talk about where the industry stands in Arizona as we start the new year and what else might be on the horizon is Eddie Salaya, reporter with KGUN 9 in Tucson and host of the Here Weed Go podcast. Hey, Eddie, how you doing? Hey, how's it going, Mark? Going all right. So I mentioned that uh, the Biden administration is looking to reclassify cannabis on a federal level. What kind of practical impact would that have? So on a practical level for consumers, it really wouldn't change anything. Every state kind of is their own little silo. Uh, And if you were to say uh, change over from schedule three to or schedule one to schedule three tomorrow, you wouldn't notice anything walking into your dispensary. However, the folks running your dispensary, they would notice something. Uh, If there is a move to schedule three, the most likely and most impactful outcome would be that Cannabis companies and marijuana-associated companies would not be subject to what's known as 280E. It is part of uh, their filing of taxes, and it basically means that companies uh, that are associated with this business are taxed at a marginal rate of between, usually between 65 and 70 percent, and that is significantly higher than your average small business or any business, really. Yeah. So you mentioned that that consumers wouldn't really notice it. I wonder if it would have maybe a a change, even a subtle change in how people perceive marijuana. Uh, I think that that, that's where it would really have kind of the, uh, if you will, the sea change. Um, That would basically be the federal government saying like, hey, there there is some sort of at least medical use for cannabis going forward. Uh, and and that would be a huge thing. It, it could also free up research dollars um, that, mm. that right now uh, some, some might not be willing to, to kind of use. Uh, I, I have spoke with researchers at the University of Arizona who think this could be uh, a real great thing uh, for freeing up the kind of research that they're allowed to do as well. Interesting. One of the other things that we've heard about on the federal level is something called the safe banking law, which would essentially allow marijuana businesses to work with banks. I mean, in many cases, they have to use uh, cash or other kinds of go-betweens in order to to do transactions there. Is there any chance that, that that could go through Congress this year? Yeah, I'm not seeing really much movement, uh, at least in the sources that I've talked to on on anything like that this year, um, mostly because it is an election year. uh, And I I think that any anything that could be seen as getting uh, Democrats or the Biden administration a win, even as something as small uh, as an issue as cannabis, uh, just isn't something that's that's going to be really looked at in any real seriousness this year. Uh, however, there's, there's always, there's always a chance. 
and, and it's always uh, fortuitous to see how this year's election kind of shakes out uh, sure. going forward in 2025. All right. So quickly, before we let you go, let's look at the state level. And we've seen that there have been some recalls of marijuana over yeah. some concerns about contamination. Is there a, a sense that there needs to be maybe more consistent guidelines or standards for testing this product? There is that. Uh, there is also the uh, the need to kind of what's to kind of curtail what's called uh, lab shopping, uh, where uh, certain vendors will go to different labs. And really, this is more a concern when it comes to testing for potency. Mm-hmm. Um, Right now in the the cannabis space, potency is kind of all the rage with consumers because higher potency means that you achieve theoretically a, a higher high. Right. Um, so uh, there there is some need to curtail that sort of usage. Um, and then you know, as far as recalls go, it's I, there's it's kind of a double edged sword. Some in the industry will say, "Hey, it's actually." a good thing that we're hearing about these recalls uh, and they're, they're not quite as large as they are, especially when you look at States like Missouri, where the, uh, there was actually <laughs> folks uh, coming in uh, with weed from Oklahoma uh, that was not actually weed. It was hemp. Huh. Uh, and it wasn't until very, very late in their game uh, that they were able to recall what was an astounding, astoundingly large uh, amount of product. So, yeah. Um, some will say that there needs to be a uh, tightening up of, uh, of lab usages and uh, of guidelines and procedures. And some would say, hey, this is this is working kind of exactly as intended. All right. We'll have to leave it there. That is Eddie Salaya, reporter with Kgun 9 TV in Tucson, also host of the podcast Here We'd Go. Eddie, good as always to talk to you. Thank you. Good to speak with you. Thanks again. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. And I'm Mark Brody. Eric Weinmayer lives for adventure. The professional mountaineer and rock climber has summited Denali and the Seven Summits. That's the highest point on every continent. And he's done it all without sight. In 2001, he became the first blind person to reach the top of Mount Everest. And in a new documentary called Soundscape, he tells us how he does it, largely using echolocation and a thirst for life that was sparked when he was a teenager when he went blind. His dad had him join a recreation program for blind kids. They would go on adventures, horseback riding, sailing, and one week it was rock climbing. Enough said, man. It was it was adventure, <laughs> hanging off my fingertips and figuring out using my hands and my feet as my eyes to get myself from point A to point B to point C and like doing all these crazy moves and physical moves and leverage to figure out how to connect the dots. I was like, wow, this is this is the adventure that I crave. It was the week before his freshman year in high school when he lost the last vestiges of his sight, and he wondered what his life was going to be like. But he says he wasn't worried so much about actually being blind. He was more worried about missing out on life. Yeah, I'm a pragmatist. You know, not being able to see beautiful pictures and scenery is is one thing, but not being able to live fully is like the most terrifying thing in the world. And so for me, it was about living, you know, like I didn't like I remember sitting in the cafeteria one time and there were all these kids across the cafeteria and they're having this massive food fight. <laughs> and all I could think about was like, man, I wish I could be in the middle of that food fight. I don't want to be stuck here. 
Yeah. You know, so yeah, for me, it's about wanting to live a life of adventure. And I didn't even know what that <laughs> might look like as a blind person. That's amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so this new documentary is about the summit you made of of the Incredible Hulk. And we have to stop for a moment and, and have you explain this for folks because this is radio. They can't see it like I saw it in the documentary. <laughs> this is huge. <laughs> it's a massive face. Yeah, it's a massive vertical face in the Sierra Nevadas on the eastern side of the Sierras. And and not only is there is it a huge vertical face, but it's about a four or five hour hike up you know, some of the worst terrain just to get to the base. Mm -hmm. So yeah. And then my friend Timmy, who's this world-class climber, he's like, let's do it in a day. And I'm like, Eh. really? Okay. I want to get to that in a moment, but describe for us first how it is that you hike now, because you, you use various techniques, like you hike with a partner, that's helpful. You hike using two sticks that you sort of feel with, but you also use echolocation. Yeah. And then my friends will walk in front of me and they'll jingle a bear bell in front of me. And uh, that gives me a lot of feedback. And then, yes, I use um, echolocation, which it was um, really made famous by this blind guy named Daniel Kish, who can echolocate like nobody's business. I mean, he can ride a bike and hear trees on the side of the road. And I can do it pretty well. You know, it's the idea that sound is really comprised of sound vibrations. And so it's always sound vibrations of different sizes of, you know, different sound waves bouncing off of objects. And so like in the film, we talk about how when it bounces off a rock, it's mm-hmm. a really hard, crisp bounce. When it's bouncing off of a tree, it's filtered because the sound is going through the leaves and it's partially bouncing back. Mm. But you can get the idea of the shapes of things and the density of things. You know, when I'm hiking, I can hear the slope or the cliff to my left and the giant drop off to my right. So yeah, it's a really helpful tool for a a blind person. And most of us can do it to some degree. That's a beautiful description. Like you can tell the difference between a rock and a tree. But when you're navigating, not just the hiking on the floor of the of the forest, right? But like you're rock climbing up a, a summit like this that is just completely vertical. How yeah. do you use it then? Or is it just at that point, mostly feeling? I'd say that the hiking is the most vulnerable part for me because I'm, mm. you know, I'm, I'm like an ant, like a dog trying to use four legs instead of two legs, uh. you know, leaning on those poles, making sure every step counts that it's not, I'm not going to break my ankle or step in a hole or off a cliff, you know, so it's a lot of work to get to the face. Once I get to the face and my hands and feet are engaged, man, that's the fun part, right? Mm. Because it's this physical experience of, of just using every part of your body to physically move up this vertical environment. And yeah, I'd say at that point, it becomes more about touch uh, and about movement. I wonder if you can describe for us what it feels like to get to the top of a summit like that. A lot of people would probably say, like, why hike it if you can't see the view at the top, right? But that's not what it's about for you, it sounds like. And that's really why we made this film, because people say like, hey, if he can't see, why would he, what does he get out of the mountains? Mm. And the view's spectacular. The view, the feeling of the rock, the way when I my hands and feet touch the rock, it lights up in my brain. Just because I'm blind, it doesn't mean I'm not a very visual thinker. Mm. So whenever I'm getting information through my hands, through my ears, through my sense of smell, that's all being translated to a visual image in my mind. The world lights up. But I just need to get the information into my brain so that my brain can then see the world in its own way. When I get to the top, yeah, it's 
you can hear the sound vibrations moving out through space in this beautiful, infinite kind of scary way hmm. because the sound vibrations aren't bouncing off of a lot of things. They're just moving out through the universe. And so you feel like this tiny little speck in this massive sea of sound. And it's a great view. That's a very different way of describing a view, but it's certainly a view. Wow. Yeah. Um, in the documentary, there's this beautiful scene, and I, it sounds like this is common for you when you're hiking, but like your hiking partner takes your hand and and traces it along the mountaintops, like in the distance, so that you can visualize what this looks like. What does that look like in your mind? What it looks like is when I loved to draw when I could see mm -hmm. till I was 14. And uh, I would draw all kinds of landscapes and mountains and, and all the things that I could see out of my limited vision. So when Timmy takes my finger and runs it over these serrated ridges of the mountains, as he's running my finger over that landscape, it's like a drawing coming into focus in my brain. Uh, and, it, and, and it is funny because it's been a long time since I've actually seen the world. So yeah. I'm sure in my brain, it's kind of like a weird cartoon image, <laughs> but it's still visual image, you know? Yeah, that's really interesting. When you're on the side of the mountain like that, you're hanging on. I mean, you have ropes and helmets and such, but like those are life-defying kind of moments. Do you think because you can't see the drop, like you're more <laughs> fearless in a way? I can hear the drop, yeah. um, but I, you know, so I can I can hear the sound of it. You know, like when I climbed Everest and I was crossing over the Kumbu Icefall, I was on these ladders over these giant crevasses, mm -hmm. and you could hear the echo below you. But I don't know, falling into what you can see or falling into the unknown, which is scarier? <laughs> They're both pretty scary, actually. But for me, the challenge of rock climbing, which is the fun part of it as well, is that when I lock off on my hand, and, and uh, try to get my other hand as high as I can, I'm scanning across the face. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I, I don't, you know, I can't find that hold that's out of reach. It's all what I'm feeling under my hands. And so I'm having to figure out how to make it work, you know. So I don't always use the best hold or the hold that that sighted person next to me is using. Mm -hmm. But somehow I figure it out and, and make it work. Because if you just keep scanning for the perfect hold, you're going to run out of energy. So you just have to you just have to make do. And it's a, it, for me, it's a really fun process. And it's so engaging to be able to like problem solve your way up this vertical environment. It's such a connection between your mind and, and your body and, and your spirit. Yeah. It's, it's when I feel the most connected. Yeah. Do you think if you had not lost your sight, you would still do this? It's such a hard question. I've been asked that before. And I don't know, because at some point, like my life diverged mm -hmm. from a sighted person's life, you know, like, so maybe if I had been able to see, I would have loved basketball. I would have been a like tiny bit above average basketball player. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I would have lived this very traditional life. I, I always think that I'd like to think of myself that I'd be adventuresome, but mm -hmm. I, I don't know. You know, I think when, when you go blind and you have that moment in the cafeteria, where are like, what is my life going to look like? It pushes you to search. Mm -hmm. And in that process of searching and accepting adventure into your life, you discover a lot of great stuff that you might not have otherwise found. Yeah. All right. That is Eric Weinmayer, author, speaker, adventurer. The new documentary is out now. Eric, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Lauren.
right, that'll do it for this Wednesday edition of the show. Be sure to join us tomorrow with much more at 9 a.m. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram. We are at KJZZ, the show. For Mark Brody, I'm Lauren Gilger. Thanks for joining us. That's it for this episode of The Show Podcast. To find out more about the stories from today or other episodes, visit theshow.kjzz.org. And you can subscribe to KJZZ's The Show on your favorite podcasting site. I'm Mark Brody. Thanks for listening today.